Well, dear Levity Zone listeners, this is your Dr. Bruce back after four months, four months of transition to a brand new life. I am sitting on the new beautiful deck of the Gandalf house known as the Wizard's Abode, which I have built with a crew here, partly my own hands involved. And it's a spectacular two-and-a-half, three-story wonder of dragon scales and wing structures and feet in the rock. And it's just a spectacular place. And I put all my resources and energy into it. And I'm going to live here for the next 30 years, hopefully. And in a sense, sort of engage the world and engage the heavens and engage the magic and engage the science and the material and engage creativity, uh, engage love, engage healing, engage guests and visitors and parties. And we just had a spectacular party here two weeks ago we called Wildstock, the Woodstock 50th anniversary that we held here at Ancient Oaks. And a hundred people came, and our new Peacock Pavilion was christened, and I did a storytelling hour for the whole group. And it was just an amazing, natural, elevated state. So, uh, with all that, uh, apologies for the long absence, but I think you're going to like what comes next, because I'm going to be putting these out much more frequently and also because I've started a Patreon. My friend, dear friend, Aaron Tain, who has been down here for a month helping construct this house, a dear, dear friend from Anacortes in Washington, he is just really a huge supporter and a huge buddy and friend and co-worker now. And uh, he came down and worked for a month together on this project, along with the boys from El Salvador, Nelson and his crew. And the place is almost done. And so Aaron said, you need to build a community. You need to build a community of support. Because at the moment, I have, like, no income whatsoever. I'm just floating on very fast declining savings. And so he said, just call out. There are people who follow your work. There are people who love you. There are people who want to support you, who want guidance and mentorship from you. Just reach out, and the way to do it is Patreon. And so I set one up a couple of months ago with Aaron's direction, and now we have 20 patrons, and the support is trickling in. And as a part of my new life, I'm going to be engaging at least twice a month Levity Salons, which will involve all of you. If you join the Patreon as patrons, you can come to live Zoom salons. So we're starting them, and it's going to get underway probably September 10th of 2019 coming up. And we'll be engaging also every month in a webinar, special topics from future of life in the cosmos to the history of computing and the digital lifestyle and everything else space travel human psychology the luminous field healing arts uh, involving your your questions but really in-depth salons 
So I'm walking now and leaning over this uh, new deck railing. You can hear it pop. This is a brand new beautiful redwood. We restored a whole bunch of old redwood for the deck. And today I bought 20 cans of high gloss spray paint. And tomorrow I'm going to try a test of spraying the scallops in this beautiful cement hardy backer, which I'm tapping here, uh, siding to create the dragon scale color theme for this building. And hopefully we'll get the building painted based on the art that emerges with a dragon on board uh, sometime next month or October. So anyway, uh, all that said, find Dr. Bruce, uh, Bruce Damer at Patreon. If you just simply go to patreon.com slash Bruce Damer, all one word, you can find a way to join and support me and all this work and engage much more regularly uh, in my world. And there's various tiers of support. And thank you for all 20 that have signed up in the last six weeks or so. It's greatly appreciated. It's really greatly motivating. So with that, uh, what I want to bring you next uh, is a recording of a dinner speech that I gave at Thompson Rivers University in Kamloops, British Columbia, Canada, my hometown, where so wonderfully I was honored back on March 29th with the Distinguished Alumni Award for 2019. So they brought the kid home so that he could tell his story of what he done did out in the world, in the world of science, in the world of space and things like that. The dreams that I had walking in the sagebrush hills of Kamloops, British Columbia, they came true through moving and shaping this synchronous field and the dreams came forth. And so they wanted to hear the story of that kid who went to Caribou College in 1980, 81 and uh, learned about computing and then took his vision out into the world and brought it home to the hometown. So what you'll hear is a bit of an introduction of a short two-minute documentary piece they made of my work. And I'll, I'll put the audio for that in the podcast, of course. You won't be able to see it, but you will be able to see it on the page for this podcast at levityzone.org. So look up Podcast 71. And video of a talk I gave the previous day on March 28, 2019 in a big, beautiful round house modeled after a First Canadians Kamloops Shoe Swap Band ceremonial house on the campus of Thompson Rivers University, TRU. And so the dinner speech, it really is my love poem of appreciation to Kamloops and the people who I was raised with and by. And what really made me was that community more than anything else. The beautiful, kind, open variety of people who helped me to grow as a little kid and then into all kinds of things like scouting and education and hiking and outdoors and science and encouragement and newspaper articles and cartooning and all kinds of things that only could have happened if you grew up in a community like that made me who I was. Of course, my parents, Enid and Warren and my sister Susan and my brother Eric, a great family to be in. And uh, it all happened there in Kamloops, British Columbia, Canada. So without further ado, we'll 
go now to the great hall of Thompson Rivers University uh, after the great meal that we had, the big dinner, and you'll hear uh, this voice recorder sit down on one of two tables that had my family and friends all accumulated. You'll hear that uh, the jingling of glasses now and then, but uh, you'll hear from the point of view of the family and friends table uh, what 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 occurred and what I was able to draw forth in terms of appreciation for this beautiful life that I was given by the, the community. The Distinguished Alumni Research Award. This award recognizes an extraordinary individual for his outstanding research and engineering contributions to the study of the origin of life and the impact these conclusions have made nationally and internationally. Presenting this award tonight is Dean of the Faculty of Science, Tom Dickinson, and the 2019 Research Award recipient is Dr. Bruce Damon. The average 14-year-old doesn't spend much time thinking abstractly or questioning the origin of life, but multidisciplinary scientist and astrobiologist Dr. Bruce Damer wasn't your average 14-year-old. And that question, and many others, circulated his thoughts while hiking through the Kamloops sagebrush in 1976. And I noticed one spring when I was 14, the mariposa lilies coming up. And they were such a beautiful plant, a beautiful structure from a simple start, like a little bulb. And I, I asked the question, how could a simple thing make a complex thing? And then I asked the question of how could you make all of this? How did, where did all of life come from? And that's where I had the thought experiment and the inspiration to work on the origin of life for my whole life. Damer's thoughts and ideas continued to take shape and evolve and led to him writing a series of articles for local newspapers. As a final project that he left for the school, he made a drawing making some suggestions and predictions of what we might see in the future. And I remember looking at it just a few years ago, and a lot of those things that he was predicting, they're here, they're, they've materialized. At 19, he proposed his plans to NASA with hopes of getting hired. They wrote back, which encouraged him to pursue a formal education and aim for NASA in the future. He wanted to look into uh, space exploration and simulations and all this. Well, how do you do that? You know, start off with a program, get people together that could write programs like that. In 1981, Damer enrolled in the Nascent Computing Science Program at TRU. And I wrote a program that drew a space shuttle launching. So that was the one of my first combinations of computers and space, which I still do for NASA today. We still render and visualize future missions. So it, it started all the way back at Caribou College in, in 81 and 82. He continued developing his passion for computing in the mid-1980s as a University of Victoria co-op student performing leading-edge research for IBM. Later, he worked for a startup company called Elixir, where he developed some of the earliest PC user interfaces. In the 1990s, he led the community that brought the first multi-user virtual worlds to the internet. Since 2000, he's been supporting NASA and the space industry with numerous direction-setting simulations and mission designs. 
Damer's most notable and recent research focuses on his co-authored hypothesis that the emergence of life occurred on land within fluctuating hot spring pools, rather than deep in the ocean as previously thought. Many are calling it a paradigm shift in science as it changes the way we think about how biology first emerged, and suggests that other planets, such as Mars, might have possessed similar conditions that could support life. Damer currently serves on the NASA Mars 2020 team, where he contributes to deciding where to send the next rover searching for evidence of life on the Red Planet. He's continuing his research with colleague Professor David Deemer at University of California, Santa Cruz. They conduct live chemical testing in the lab and in the field at hot spring pools. Recently, their work was featured on the cover of Scientific American. The most exciting part of all this work is that we may have discovered that we did not come from an individual. There was no set of individual competing protocells at the origin of life, we came from a common community. He is principal scientist at the Biota Institute, an associate researcher in the Department of Biomolecular Engineering at University of California, Santa Cruz, an associate of the NASA Astrobiology Center, treasurer of the International Society for the Study of Origin of Life, and founder of several companies in Silicon Valley. One of his companies is developing a new spacecraft that could harvest water, fuel, and minerals from asteroids and help open a path to space for humans in this century. Another company is using origin of life science to develop a powerful new therapy fighting viral infections and head off the next global pandemic. Things are better for humans than they've ever been, but we're not telling ourselves that story. And I think if we can change the story to more positive narrative, we can transform our civilization and meet the challenges we have ahead. Victoria in 1968 to Kirkland Place. So I got to live in North Campus, 
and through the flood of 72. Remember the 72 flood? Wasn't that crazy? The sandbags and then soak hills and all that? And then we, we got smart and moved to Sahali. <laughs> like, oh, the river's down there now. <laughs> but what you could do from Sahali, why it was important to me is it was huge visionary perspective. So sitting on our porch in Sahali, you could see Bachelor Hills, Bachelor Heights is now called, and then this green band, and that was the northern forest between that forest is all the way to the Arctic Circle. It's unbroken, right? Amazing. And then you could look to the uh, east and you could see that the start of the Rockies and the west, you saw this great, fantastic bench land that was once glaciated, once a big dam that filled up. And that's why we have all the, the hoodoos and everything here. And that we were in a junction point. We were at the top of the Cordilleran Desert, the world's greatest desert that goes all the way down, breaks in Panama, and then goes to the southern Chile. And the same plants are everywhere along this incredibly long, lengthy desert. And so I kind of, as I came into awareness, realized this is a special place. It's at the junction point of not only the two rivers, but of whole ecosystems. It's like a junction point or a seesaw for the planet. So what happens in Kamloops actually tells you what is going on in the planet. So when the bark beetle, uh, I remember our, our cousin Ian came to Christmas dinner in 1979. His job was work for BC Forestry and just be, take a, a hatchet and cut a piece of a tree out to study what the bark beetle was doing. And I remember him at Christmas saying, they're alive in there. They are alive in there. And they're normally not, and because we haven't had 25, 35 below, they're overwintering, I wonder if this is a problem. And he wrote it up for BC Forestry. And I talked to him just the other day in Victoria, he told me the whole story, it's like, so in some sense, the, some of the earliest warnings of climate change came here. Um, it's something to think about. So, <clears throat> what a little bit of, of my life, Walking in these same sagebrush hills in 1976, as, as you may have seen in the video, I had the visionary thought experiment of where did all of life come from? If Kamloops represents a junction point of many classes of life and ecosystems, where did it all come from? And I got fascinated with that. And this community was a place that would support that because we had incredible outdoors, we had scouting, we had visionary things that we could do. We could go and climb in glaciers in O'Hara Park. We ran across a glacier, a small one, in our running shoes, I think I remember. <laughs> Jumping crevasses, not a smart thing to do. <laughs> um, but uh, the community was just so supportive. So when I started at Caribou, I actually snuck in. Um, I went one night to register for a course, and I thought, I bet you that since they don't have a computing system yet, I could go in there, it's all on cards, I could go in there and actually sign up for night school, but they won't think that, to ask that if I graduated from high school, which nobody did. So I started here in 79, like in secret, taking night classes. You know, I, came, I outed myself later, but now I've outed myself. But um, it was like, this was just such a resource here. And there were only four buildings, right? There was Old Main, 
there was the core of the library. The science building was brand new. We were there when they cut the ribbon on it. And I was impressed by one thing, which Tom later told me may not have been a good thing, which is like, they announced that it was completed under budget. <laughs> and Tom said, what did they cut out <laughs> for that? Anyway, uh, but there was really just four buildings and, and the modules, which I think survived until recently, these, those portables. But everywhere I looked, I mean, if I wanted to do computer science, I could. If I wanted to do, do it and stay up all night and, and operate the, one of the 12 terminals that we had that Wes uh, was helping as a co-student to run computer science. And computer science consisted just of a PDP-11 and a couple of trash 80s and then terminals. And then the next room was Derek Chambers' classroom, and that was computer science. But that was a playground for me. And I was permitted to uh, get a new account with more blocks, and I was able to expand and grow. Uh, so in a way, I think that if I'd started at UBC, you're anonymous, right? UBC's so big. It mattered to have the personal touch. It mattered that Jim Hebden ran lunchtime programs uh, on quantum mechanics and things and on mental blockbusting. It was always the personal touch that you can only get in a town like this. So, you know, beyond thanking my family, Enid and Warren, do you remember Enid and Warren Damer? seven or eight years ago, and uh, we the last time I was here was for uh, Enid's memorial service, which Susan organized so beautifully down in Riverside Park, and some of you were probably there. Warren, of course, was a, an amazing figure in the community and taught at NORCAM, Sahali, and Kamai in English. You know, all, he sort of did his full tour. Just beautiful, beautiful people. Um, so it all really added up so that when I went out into the world, I was really grounded. I could really feel that I had security, actually. And so it didn't matter where I ended up going to universities, working in Pakistan during the, the, the really violent times, setting up a software lab there, going to Eastern Europe before that, setting up the first software lab uh, in Czechoslovakia. And crazy, shaky times, but there was always a calmness. There was always a, a measure inside me of feeling like everything was going to be all right. And I think it came from here, from, from this community. Um, and it really helped. So with that, I think, um, um, I know there was potential for some questions. Uh, you can shout them out or we might be bringing some chairs up. So um, if you want to ask nerdy questions, go ahead. <laughs> And uh, one of the wonderful things, I want to acknowledge Nancy Beppel for making this possible. So, uh, Nancy just wrote out of the blue, if you're ever at TRU or Kamloops, we'd love to have you. I said, I'm going to be in you know, Victoria in, in eight, six, eight weeks, and I could just come up to Kamloops. And so this happened. And she was, was cleaning up some of her mom's stuff and found our old Sahali Star student newspapers, which she was the general editor, and I think Phil Paul was the overall commander, and something got us in trouble with Reno Favreau, probably, but uh, <laughs> who knows. And then I drew all the cartoons, 
and so she brought one tonight and we were just handing it around and and it was uh, it was just really fun to see I was a cartoonist and you may have read my cartoons and you saw those space drawings and that was all published in the Camel's News and thank you Mel Rothenberger you know for letting a kid basically 15 14 years old take over a column on kids art and then write full-on columns full-on science stories at like 16 17 thank you Mel I mean, there it is again. It's 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 this it's this ethos that's in this community of openness and support. And I just I wouldn't have done any of this without without you and without what Camus is. So thank you. that you have a passion for outside of the curriculum and then present them present them as though they're real projects and take take ownership so I was always doing this like in in comp sci I wrote a program to draw on the most primitive VT 101 terminals Wes I remember this uh, to, to draw house plans and they just sort of let me do that, and then I showed it to the class. It's like, well, that wasn't in the curriculum, but it was so cool. And, you know, I didn't know you could do that on that type of computer. But, it, and I think always let students do that. Always, it's the special projects where the real learning and the real magic happens. Those special projects um, that are kind of not in the curriculum. The curriculum is just a framework. It's not the whole thing. It's not the human being, really. And I think as long as we allow students to grow outside the curriculum and take stuff from it and squeeze it back in, we're going to make really powerful learning environments. On that note, how important is mentorship to a student to have a student have individuals that believe in them, encourage them, and invite them to step outside of the curriculum? I think that mentorship is like the number one thing. There, there really isn't anything that's a substitute for that. Uh, to tell you my own later story, here's a, I'm a computational theorist, I've done tons of computer science, and I have these visions for the origin of life that it happened in a cycling system that was compartmentalization, but I didn't have the chemistry. You know, despite uh, Jim Hebden being at the school, I actually, for some reason, never rolled in chemistry. <laughs> so I find myself you know, four years ago, presenting this origin of life model to, and there's two Nobel Prize winning chemists in the front row. So my mentor, David Deemer, and I, he, he was training me for six or seven years on the chemistry. But you can still misspeak yourself, right? Chemistry is a deep field. I mean, often chemists can't make breakthroughs until their mid-40s. That is how much training is required, in, especially organic chemistry. And the Nobel Prizes are won in the 50s and 60s in chemistry. So sort of like, not like math. You have to really travel a long road. And so uh, Dave, Dave Deemer, uh, mentored me for six or seven years. So that moment arrived in Japan when we were presenting really the greatest model 
proposed in the history of their field and in the history of, of biology itself. And so we were scripted, <laughs> totally scripted. One, the one novellist was skeptical, but he's been won over recently. And the other one, Edo Yonath from Weizmann Institute, She's the grandma novellist. She's like such a great grandma and a human being. She came bustling up to me at the end of the meeting, grabbed me and said, I'm very excited about your model. Ooh. <laughs> you know, I'm a theater major and I'm understanding about 75% of what you're saying, but I love every minute of it. Um, now, do we have a question in the audience? I cannot be the only one with rich and compelling questions. Bradley says ladies first, so this is not a science question, this is a, a, a bit of a spiritual question, but I was at your lecture and um, although I was impressed with the science, I was more impressed by your underlying positivity. And I'm wondering, in a time where we're so bombarded by negative messages, how do you preserve that positivity? Thank you for asking that question. Um, one of the ways I preserved is I shut out all the news. I just don't watch it at all. Because I determined that it was kind of like toxic some time ago. So I just did a 100% shutdown. Where I get my news is by doing this, going around the world and meeting people. And I go around the entire world multiple times a year sometimes. And that's how I've gotten my perspective. So some people come to me and say, well, it's the worst of times. But I think, well, it's not in my experience. Everywhere I go, it's improved. For humans, it's a tremendous time. It's the most amazing time in our history. It's the best time to be a, a human on the earth, notwithstanding that there are problems coming. So I think that the other thing for the positivity is looking at the long perspective. If we started four billion years ago, uh, through this incredible cycling system of protocellular generation and evolution. And this fragile system managed to survive and then to make a garden world. And then the garden world begat complex beings that had to have each their own disasters at the right moment in order to create a being with a big brain. Because <laughs> a big brain wasn't really favored by, by evolution, not necessarily. We are a miracle. Each one of us is a walking miracle in the cosmos. We're so extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary. So I kind of look at it that way, and I, I sometimes talk to the cosmos and say, okay, you know, help us out here. And I get these amazing answers. So, for example, um, in November, I did my usual server call with the cosmos and saying, um, I think there's going to be a problem with our sea levels please help us out, go to work. Because I think there's a bigger, there's a bigger field out there than our little monkey brains, right? It's, it's some kind of connected thing that does all these synchronous, fantastic chance events. When I was nine or 10, I was doing these A-B comparisons in North Canada. So I'd walk off Kirkland Place, and then I would say, okay, I'm gonna go into my thinking brain and try to figure out where I should go. And it would always kind of be a little confused, but then if I went into my intuitive sense, I'm just going to let the system walk me. It was always better. Wow, I ended up at the slough and I ended up meeting somebody and it was like so much better. It's like, oh, okay, it's better to be guided than to try to control. So that's how I led my whole life. So in November I said, okay, guide me to a place where we can work on sea level rise and climate change 
Seven weeks later, I meet an admiral in Qatar in the Middle East. This is spark. We started talking and we came up with a solution for it on a huge scale to turn the Pentagon to a new mission. So now he's been in touch with his boss as a four-star admiral. And this whole thing is starting to roll. It's like, wait a minute, we can do this. We can do sea level abatement on a massive scale. We can change the national, international dialogue. We can do this from within this agency. And then I met with Google, Apple, and Facebook, and they're like, we'll finance this state. So stuff like, oh, it's all solvable. You know, somehow, it's this infrastructure and it's, 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 it's commitment, it's, it's, it's courage and it's uh, gumption. And humans are really good, we're so adaptable. And I think we're gonna have to build some bridges to cross over, but we can do that. And I think we'll have a beautiful civilization at the end of the century. Was there a gentleman over there that had a question? There was a, yes. During your remarks, you had been talking about uh, um, the bark beetle infestation and kind of the epicenter being right here in, in Kamloops for climate change um, some time ago. And previous to, to you coming on stage, we had to have the opportunity to talk a little bit about climate change in regards to forest fires. And was kind of wondering what your take on that is, is looking at that being a, a huge issue for this community. California has been ravaged. And basically, we now have Australian-class fires. The, the fires you used to see in Victoria, they were the most violent fires in the world. Now they're here because of ground heating and extra wind. So basically, California is having to wake up. Oh, we have to change everything. I mean, the good news about California is that they stay in shock for a while. I mean, the, the state gets shock, shaken by earthquakes, but then they come together and they come with solutions. So California is in shock right now. We lost 12,000 houses in a month last year, the, the fires that raged through. And everyone's just starting to think, how do we adjust everything? And in some ways, every time you have a canary in the mine, Example being Qatar. So Qatar built half a trillion dollars of infrastructure and did not account for sea level rise. They're kind of in shock. Her Royal Highness woke up one morning when they had a one-inch rainfall, flooded the entire country because they never built drainage before. She woke up and said, we need to get to work. And so when people wake up, when the canary in the mine is where the learning happens, where the innovation happens. Because evolution itself, how it works is you have the progenote, you have the first colony of protocells come up, and it reaches a stress point. Maybe it's hit by too much ultraviolet radiation or the water is shaking too much around it and it starts breaking up. That stress point is the only way it's going to evolve. So every time you come down into a neck of stress and you feel that pressure, which we're doing to ourselves through our weird negative medium, in a sense it's the serpent of tech that's coiling around us, it stresses us, and if we can evolve and adapt from that, we then pop out the other side where we're evolved, we're advanced. So anytime you feel the stress, you know that the power of evolution is underway, and it's stressing the whole planet right now. And any woman who's given birth knows that that pressure point of the child coming out is the very epitome of evolution, new birth. That's what we're in. Do we have another question? Do I see a little, a little hand up there? 
Uh, Mike Stewart-Smith, uh, Bruce, uh, you, you alluded to the rise of the oceans around the continent and everywhere. Uh, do you believe that there's a finite amount of water in our total atmosphere? And has that finite amount of uh, water ever changed? And the second part of this question is, how did you guys calculate the thickness of the ice melt of both Arctic and Antarctic circles to give the definitive amount of ocean rise to three or six feet, I believe? It's not really my department, it's not that one I study, but <laughs> we know a lot of that, but uh, this riff. Um, the interesting thing about the Earth is it has been so constant. We go to Australia and we, uh, we find these stromatolites uh, in this Archean crust that's in Northwest Australia, and it's 3.5 billion years old. And it's just been uncovered by erosion, and there's this outcrop, and there's these ripple rocks. Some of them show uh, life as it was on the seashore 3.5 billion years ago. Some of it's now showing that there were hot springs there, which really supported our approach. But the Earth didn't have oxygen, it uh, had pink skies and it had massive impactors and it, it had a, a cooling crust and everything, but it had about the same amount of water. It had a lot of delivery of water from outside and stuff blows off. So really a constant world. And the, the thing that we're finding at NASA, which is really stunning for us, we're sending a rover in about 18 months that has a little helicopter on it. I don't know if you've seen the stories. Mars 2020, it's 1,600 pounds, whatever that is. In, measurement um, and we've decided where to land it and it's going to look for those ripple rocks now if life was on Mars uh, Mars had an ocean really probably pretty shallow and it lost it about between 400 and 700 million years ago boom atmosphere was being stripped away because the magnetosphere stopped the dynamo stopped turning it dried out became super cold and, and, and super uh, sterilizing for life so we're going to find life, if we find anything on the surface, it's going to be evidence of past life. The life that would, would be on Mars would be microbes in the rocks, hidden, unable to evolve until the sun consumes Mars. And then you go to Venus, and that, that's where the atmosphere evaporated. Uh, this ocean's boiled into the atmosphere and created this huge blanket of CO2. And the Earth is in the middle. It's in the Goldilocks zone. It's not too hot, not too cold. And it's a miracle planet probably because we have a huge moon. And we have a moon that's exactly the right size. Any little bit bigger, we'd have a wobble in our rotation. The Earth system is like the definition of perfection, that it could carry a liquid ocean for three billion years and allow us to rise. So the, the water question is really key. So when we look at exoplanets, we see all these weird solar systems. Life could start there, but it could never go to complexity. So we're learning that we're so much rarer and rarer and rarer. And the last question Mike had was the melt rate, the gigatonnage of melt rate. When you fly to Europe, which I'll be flying tomorrow, and you see the blue streaks on the ice cap and this massive gigatonnage of water coming out, you know, it's right plain to see. And I'm not sure what the, the melt rates will do. Admiral Hayes, his statement was, we need to be designing in the 20s and building in the 30s. 2030, January 1st, we have to be under construction of all these abatement systems. And that's where Army Corps of Engineers comes in, and huge amount of finance and everything, just ignore the, ignore the politicians, just, just step around them, just get to work. So that's, that's their approach.
and they know they can do it, and they'll work with all the grassroots movements, and we'll prepare for the, the sea level rise. The Dutch have already been to the San Francisco Bay and to meet with the Bay Area planning. The Dutch know what to do with this sort of stuff. Totally. <laughs> I see a hand up in the back. How can regular people stay involved in space exploration and cool science like you are talking about? How can regular people stay involved? It's actually easier than ever. It's amazing. There was a, a student who was in the ninth grade back in, I think his school is in Connecticut, and he wrote to Steve Ruff, who was on the Mars 2020 landing site meeting, said, I want to be involved. And Steve said, okay, you know, you're in grade nine, and well, here, here's a whole bunch of papers to read. You know, that's what you just do. And by gosh, Alex read them all. And then he started to go on to the Mars databases, and he did incredibly detailed surveys from the Mars Global Surveyor and all those images, and he, he studied all of Mars. He mainlined it. So by the time he was in grade 10, he just knew the surface of Mars, because he had access. Then he showed up at the, the second landing site meeting as an observer, joined the team. Then he showed up at the third landing site meeting, and he made a presentation. He, he made a presentation in front of 300 geologists and mission planners and engineers, and he helped move the room. And then at our last meeting, he was just starting first year university, and he made another presentation at the fourth landing site meeting. And then I suggested to him, wow, you have the integrated picture that we don't have. Why don't you write a review article? And he did. It was magnificent. He sent it like four weeks ago, and he's in first year college, and this article is like the master plan for the future exploration of Mars. Alex Longo, I mean, wow. So it's totally possible. I mean, there's there's no closed doors. Oh, we got another hand right there. I'm just gonna hand the mic to you. This is your show. <laughs> Bruce, what constitutes life? We, we have life on Earth as we know it, and we've got this infinity forever out there. What other life can there be, that, I mean, outside of what we know, with different chemistry, different elements, different, or is that finite? You know, it's amazing. Um, we get asked this question a lot because we're seeing thousands of these solar systems. And you can go online and, and, and study them. Like there's one with two stars and a hot giant, hot Jupiter on the inside. And then there's another with this wonderful Trappist-1 system, which has this little red dwarf and it has these tiny rocky worlds, like seven of them, I think. And they're, they're, it's such a tiny little solar system, but there it is, and it could have liquid water on those. And we're discovering many worlds. You know, this is what Copernicus gave us. So Copernicus gave us this idea that we weren't the center of the universe. The sun, the planets orbited around the sun, and that there was a possibility of other worlds and other beings. So it really started with him. And what we've done now is that we've may have discovered the mechanism by which life is lifted from the background of the universe into existence. And it's a simple mechanism. It works chemically in the lab and now in the field. You saw the, the New Zealand where I was injecting into the little vials. It works so well in the acidic waters of Rotorua. And so we may have discovered something more profound than we thought, which is the chemical origin of life, which is the, the general principle of emergence itself. 
that what you need to have things become new, in a sense an engine of creation or a Genesis engine, is only three properties. And we're, we're doing it right here in this group. I'll give you a little bit of a micro lesson. Uh, the first property is crowding. And the fact that we're crowded together in this room means that things are likely to happen much more than not as we were sort of dispersed outside the room. That's how our protocells and chemicals work. The second thing is internetworking. That if you pass communications or networks or chemicals around between the crowded things, uh, it creates a network effect, which is very powerful. It's a effect so powerful it can defeat something called the second law of thermodynamics, which is sort of trying to degrade everything all the time. Then there's a third thing that can arise, which is memory. So in, in this room, you'll remember this talk, or we've recorded it, or you'll text somebody in the room, or you know, you'll, you'll, you'll build a memory that you can read the next time you meet. And that's called evolution, cultural evolution, biological evolution, technological, even spiritual evolution. And I had a vision about two years ago where I was asking, what are the fundamental building blocks of emergence? And that's what I saw. And the voice came to me, there is nothing not explainable. There's nothing outside this system. Probability, interaction, and memory. So the cool thing is we can apply it to planets. We can apply it to philosophy. So we're, we're presenting this all over the world at meetings. And it may be a second Copernican revolution. It may be that we found this universal system of creation. And it's just this PIM. And there's one more thing that it, it gives you. And I'll try to explain this as simply as I can. Every time the sun rises, you get this flood of energy on the surface of the earth that dries everything. It gets people up and gets them to Tim Hortons, you know. <laughs> it gets the plants growing. It's a pulse of energy and it's a cycling mechanism. It has happened for four billion years. It drives this PIM engine, first in biology and then in technology and then in culture. And it's constantly generating new, it's generating new complexity, new memories, new probabilities. With smartphones, we're doing it even faster and faster and faster and faster and faster. So it's a stacking mechanism that stacks up miraculous things, brings things that would be miracles like the smartphone into existence through this very process. And we're on top of a potential gradient now that is enormous. And humans are that potential. So I'll leave you with one thing to, you can play around with this. Just like I was doing when I was nine, saying, I want to be just directed by the universal intelligence. Like, walk me where I should be. That is a network made by this potential gradient that you can tap into. And the way you do that is through dreams and intention. So if you have a strongly held dream that comes to you very clearly, and you hold on to it, and you have this intention, I want to realize that dream. And then you listen. So it's intention to follow the dream, attention to the little marbles that will then roll your way out of that field saying oh go pick up that marble you know you want to become a great dancer you met someone who knows a great dance teacher pick that marble up and go and contact them every time you pick up that marble of action from your intention it opens that valley of probability that you can get closer and closer to getting a great dance teacher going to a studio 
you know, getting turned on by a certain style and you, your journey is underway. And that's how you can use this synchronous field. That's how you can use the miracle of potential that the earth has generated, that life has generated for us to work with. And I think it's this dream plus intention plus action is the greatest tool humans will ever have. And it's how we will build a very beautiful, positive future. Dude, you are like breaking my brain here. <laughs> so, uh, we have room for one more question. <laughs> Hi. Um, so I'm not sure if you ever experienced fear to bring your ideas forward, but if you did at such a young age, how were you able to overcome your fear and approach professors or bring your ideas forward? So the question is, um, did I experience fear to bring ideas forward? And I, I certainly did. I mean, I, just like every other kid, you, you don't know what you're doing is going to be accepted. You know, what if you did bring it forward and, and you got sort of patted down or, oh, very nice or whatever, really kind of discouraging, right? So what I would do is, instead of sort of having the burst of ideas rushing forward to present it, I would observe the situation. I would research what the teacher or professor was actually doing in their life. I would build a background model of the whole system, that teacher or professor. What were their passions, etc. So that when I crafted my approach, and I've done this all my life, when I crafted the approach, it would land beautifully. <laughs> I think this is called the, the art of bureaucracy. <laughs> the convincing. Uh, so, is, is that helpful? <laughs> I, I also want to acknowledge the two tables of family and friends that are over here to the left of people who made a huge difference in my life and continue all, all the time. And this is like the best family reunion and friends reunion. And, this is your life kind of thing that I've ever had, ever experienced, and it won't be the, the last, but blessings to these beings over here. Thank you. I'm going to be processing this for the rest of my life. Thank you so much, everyone. Let's give a round of applause to Dr. Bruce.